This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Roundtable listeners. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Gravel, epidemiologist and family medicine resident at the University of Toronto and one of your new regular rotating co-hosts. Very happy to introduce my co-host today, Peter Reardon. Peter's an emergency medicine resident and critical care fellow from the University of Ottawa. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, John. Never in my wildest dreams that I think we'd go from our Queen's days to this, but you know, it's certainly an honor to be here, so thanks for having me. Okay, Peter, let's dive right in. What article are you going to be telling us about today? All right, John, well, the paper I picked is titled Concomitant Oral Anticoagulant and Nonsteroidal Anti-Inflammatory Drug Therapy in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation. So this was published in JAK, the Journal of American College of Cardiology, just a few months ago. Before we get to the bottom line and really get into the study, any disclosures or conflicts from the authors or yourself? Well, nothing for myself, of course, being a lowly resident, but you'll see this is a post hoc analysis of the RELY trial published in New England Journal in 2009. So the authors didn't receive any particular funding for the post hoc analysis portion, but it should be noted that many of the authors from the original trial are on this paper as well, and there are multiple different funding sources for that original trial. There's nothing I could see that would particularly influence the findings or interpretation, though. Great. Thanks. What is the bottom line here? Well, uh, as I mentioned, it's post-hoc analysis of the data from the RELY trial. It was an RCT which originally examined two different doses of dabigatran versus warfarin in patients with non-valvular AFib. The post-hoc analysis found that the use of NSAIDs in combination with oral anticoagulants with either warfarin or dabigatran was associated with increased risk of major bleeding, including GI and non-GI bleeding, but also stroke, systemic embolic events, and increased rates of hospitalization. Overall, there was no association with rates of MI, uh, intracranial hemorrhage, uh, or mortality overall. That is quite a mouthful, lots of outcomes there, but we're gonna get into that. So why'd you choose this article? Well, pain management is really ubiquitous to most medical specialties, especially in my world of practice in ED and in the ICU. It can be really challenging sometimes. You know, Tylenol is is our safest drug for most patients, but oftentimes it doesn't cut it for acute pain. And there's more and more press about the dangers of opioid prescribing and older patients in particular, they're a difficult challenge because of all their baseline comorbidities. And So this article really caught my eye. I was really intrigued to see um, with NSAIDs, what are the particular dangers? And so, you know, with NSAIDs, they've long been available, they're over the counter, but they have their downsides. We know in terms of pathophysiology, there's effects on the platelets, the kidneys, gastric lining, the vasculature. And so this predisposes to many different issues, including fluid retention, renal failure, hypertension, congestive heart failure. And so, From that, we can see bleeding complications and then also ischemic complications like stroke and MI. So really, the at-risk patients of these side effects tend to be the ones who are most vulnerable. You know, for example, older patients with multiple comorbidities. So yeah, it it can be a real challenge. Totally. And I mean, these same patients, the ones that are at risk for all the complications because they tend to be elderly with multiple comorbidities, are also the ones that are most at risk for undertreatment of their pain because we're scared to use things like opioids. And that under-treatment of pain or illegal analgesia puts them at risk for things like delirium, falls, return visits. So, you know, it's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Absolutely. You know, so then the question becomes what to do about acute pain in especially these older patients where there's a higher prevalence of acutely painful conditions like osteoarthritis, 
rheumatoid arthritis, but they also have high rates of comorbid diseases like AFib and vascular risk factors. So many of our medications, we really need to think about the side effects of them when we're treating the pain. So specifically with this article, what do we do about patients with atrial fibrillation on oral anticoagulants who have pain? There have actually not been many studies on the subject to date, despite how many patients are actually taking these drugs. There's been some small observational studies, most recently actually, I mean recently, it was published in 2014. There's an article in Annals of Internal Medicine looking at a nationwide cohort study, a big database of patients who were receiving anticoagulation for AFib and looked at the use of NSAIDs. I won't get into the details, but this study really sets the stage. There seemed to be a higher risk of both bleeding and thromboembolic complications. So then the thought becomes, well, what about other practice settings? This was one nation, so it was just a Danish cohort. And then what about other newer agents? Um, so our patients on some of the DOACs like apixaban, um, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, adoxaban, you know, more and more patients are taking these as opposed to warfarin for, for many different reasons. And this really just hasn't been studied extensively before. Awesome. So let's really get into it here. Tell me about the study design. What exactly did they do? So as I mentioned before, this is a post hoc analysis of the RELY trial. This was a massive parallel group RCT. It was published in the year 2009. It included over 18,000 patients. These were from 951 centers in 44 countries. So a huge multinational study. And they wanted to look at warfarin versus two different doses of dabigatran in patients with non-valvular AFib to look at, again, uh, stroke prevention, uh, but bleeding complications as well. And, and so these were patients seen in cardiology clinics with atrial fibrillation within the last six months. And they also had to meet uh, criteria for oral anticoagulants. It, it is important to note that back then there was less liberal use, we'll say, with oral anticoagulants. We know that our guidelines, uh, in any case in Canada, Canadian cardiovascular guidelines changed in 2014 so that anybody with a CHAD 65 of one or more is going to get an anticoagulant. But back then, there was a little bit more stringent criteria. So you'll see that the baseline CHADS VASC of these patients was higher than most of the patients we would see in either primary care or eMERGE clinics. Great. So now with the good grasp of who these patients were in the original trial, what did they do in the post-doc analysis? We'll make sure the original paper is up on the show notes for people to check out. All right. So out of those 18,000 patients, they wanted to look at specifically those patients who used NSAIDs. So around 13%, so over 2,000 patients used NSAIDs at least once versus those who did not. And they wanted to compare those versus the rest of the cohort in terms of, again, sort of bleeding, stroke complications, that kind of thing. And could these NSAIDs be for any indication, any length? Yeah, so this is one of the, the tough parts. This is one of the limitations of the trials that we actually don't know the indication for the NSAID. We don't know the dose, the duration, what type. We do know that they excluded COX-2 inhibitors like uh, Celebrex or Celecoxib. But patients were identified for this trial as having taken an NSAID at least once. So that was the exposure. That's all we know. Okay. What were the outcomes that they sought out to measure? So they looked at many different outcomes. They were looking at uh, major bleeding. They separated out GI versus non-GI major bleeding. They wanted to look at rates of intracranial hemorrhage and stroke, systemic embolism, myocardial infarction. And then they looked at some overall outcomes like rates of hospitalization and mortality. And how exactly did they do this? Give, give the epidemiologists here some statistics. 
All right. Well, uh, the investigators performed a multivariate adjusted Cox regression analysis. So we know that the Cox proportional hazards model is a form of survival analysis, essentially examining the risk of an event occurring over time. So it's analogous to multiple regression as it takes into account potential confounders to try and limit their, their impact on the analysis. Because, you know, the important thing to remember is that this is not a randomized control trial. So in RCTs, you have two groups that are going to be randomized so that when you look at the baseline table, you know, the usual table one, you should see very similar patient characteristics. But when you're taking a cohort of data like this and you're separating out patients who took NSAIDs versus those who didn't, there's bound to be imbalances between the groups. And so the way to try and control for that is in these regression models. Right. I love survival analysis. I'm that cool. Cox regression, in my mind, step up from a Kaplan-Meier curve by allowing to attempt to control for multiple confounders at the same time and giving us hazard ratio as an outcome. Right. So we need to remember that hazard ratios differ a little bit from what we're used to in terms of relative risk and odds ratios. So relative risk, odds ratios, those are metrics that occur over an entire study period, whereas hazard ratios represent instantaneous risk over that study time period. So relative risk, odds ratios, we're looking at outcomes for the most part versus hazard ratios looking at exposures. Awesome. So drumroll Peter here, tell me what they found. Well, from their time varying covariate analysis, they found a hazard ratio of major bleeding associated with NSAID use of 1.68, GI major bleeding 1.81, stroke or systemic embolism 1.63, and overall increased hospitalization with a hazard ratio of 1.64. Now, in terms of intracranial hemorrhage, MI, uh, mortality, those were not statistically significant differences between groups. Those are some pretty significant risks, and, you know, quite an impressive sample size. Tell us more, though. Any, any interesting aspects to this study that really caught your eye that we haven't touched on? Well, of course, this is an observational study, so these are associations only. We can't infer causation, but it does demonstrate some risk of using NSAIDs in patients on oral anticoagulants. I think it's especially interesting that although we saw the increased risk of bleeding complications that we might expect, you know, you have a patient on an anticoagulant, you're adding in the NSAID, but we also saw an association with increased thrombotic complications. And so that was, I found, particularly interesting. In terms of applications, I mean, really, we need to exercise extreme caution when we're considering NSAID use in someone who's already on an oral anticoagulant. We can consider using something like the HasBled score in terms of their risk of bleeding, but we need to remember that they're also at risk of these thrombotic complications. So I would think about using other non-NSAID analgesia if it's possible, and if you really want to go for the NSAID, limit the dose and the duration. And also there's an opportunity for more PPI use. In this trial, in the NSAID group, only 17% used a PPI at any point in time. I mean, the protective effect is small. We have a relative risk reduction of only 0.09, some studies have shown, but still better than no protection. Agreed, and reasonably very little risk associated to them. So any important limitations that we haven't touched on? Well, first, this was a post hoc analysis. It also did not examine patients on oral anticoagulants for any other indication, like DVT or pulmonary embolism. I also wonder if these patients were slightly sicker, uh, as we discussed before, so maybe at higher risk for these events at baseline. And also, again, to sort of reiterate, we're not sure of the dosing, the amount of time, so 
I think it really begs the question, what about patients where we want a very short duration of NSAID analgesia? Or what about a single dose in the emergency department, for example? We, we don't know the risk of that. And also, this was purely looking at dabigatran, warfarin, although they had very similar effects, we can't directly extrapolate to apixaban, rivaroxaban, adoxaban, that kind of thing. And I mentioned before, they didn't look at COX-2 inhibitors. So on balance, weighing the strengths and the weaknesses here, what are your thoughts on this study? So overall, I'd say NSAIDs carry risk, especially in our comorbid patients. And, you know, this is really where the art of medicine comes in. No study patient is going to be your patient. So our job is to look at the patient in front of us, assess their needs for analgesia, and also the risks and benefits of the therapy that we can possibly provide. You know, and then from that, we're going to come up with the best possible treatment plan while incorporating the existing relevant evidence. And while you were preparing for this, did you come upon anything else that's been published recently on the subject? Well, interestingly, there was another study presented at the American Heart Association 2018 conference just a couple of weeks ago. Similar post hoc analysis where they looked at the Aristotle trial. Very similar trial, except they were looking at apixaban versus warfarin in non-valvular AFib. And they found that NSAID users had a higher risk of bleeding than non-users. So Pete, the eMERGE, the ICU, is this going to way they going to affect the way you practice medicine? Absolutely. You know, I think my co-resident Rajiv Thabanathan said it best. He looked at me the other day when we were talking about this and he says, Pete, have you ever fallen out of love with someone? Getting really personal here. Well, we, we were actually talking about fluoroquinolones at the time, but I feel the exact same heartache with NSAIDs. You know, the more I read on the subject, the more fear is instilled in me and the more I'm just afraid of prescribing these drugs. The COX-2 literature is not is similarly not very encouraging and neither are the studies looking at PPI adjuncts, you know, in terms of preventing bleeding, never mind thrombotic complications. So I think all I can confidently say is that we need to exercise caution when we're prescribing NSAIDs to patients, especially patients on oral anticoagulants and strongly consider alternative pain management options. And again, just really emphasizing the art of medicine and weighing the risks and benefits for your particular patient in front of you. I totally agree. And as we said before, these patients who tend to be on these oral anticoagulants tend to be the older, sicker ones, those most at risk for side effects of their undertreatment of their pain, but also those that are most going to be susceptible to the side effects of things like opioids. So not easy. All right, John, well, let's switch it up. You know, pressure's off me now. You're up to bat. So what study are you going to be talking to us uh, about today? going to be talking to everybody about a paper published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by David Vinson and colleagues just a few weeks ago titled Increasing Safe Outpatient Management of Emergency Department Patients with Pulmonary Embolism, a Controlled Pragmatic Trial. The study was funded by the Garfield Memorial National Research Fund, the Permanente Medical Group Delivery Science and Physician Researchers Program, and a number of other Kaiser Permanente associated funds but none of the authors report any conflicts of interest. And Kaiser Permanente is an absolute beast. Feels like they have a ton of great research coming out of there in both ED and primary care settings. Anyway, John, what was the, the bottom line for this one? Well, in this multi-site controlled pragmatic trial to evaluate the effect of an integrated electronic clinical decision support system that I'll refer to as CDSS going forward to facilitate risk stratification and decision-making at the site of care for patients with acute PE, they found among 881 eligible patients diagnosed with PE at the intervention sites with the CDSS and 822 PEs diagnosed at the control sites without the CDSS, 
adjusted home discharge increased at intervention sites without a concurrent increase at control sites with a difference in difference of 11 percentage points. So John, why is this important and why do the authors set out to study this in the first place? Well, the literature is pretty clear that the discharge from the ED with an acute PE can be safe and effective in many circumstances, but the practice varies widely by center and physician. In some settings, up to half of patients with acute PE are safely managed exclusively as outpatients, but the prevalence of home dischargers in most medical centers around the world is much lower. And obviously, from a choosing wisely lens, admitting patients who are eligible for treatment as an outpatient is a totally inefficient use of resources, not to mention the risks associated of hospitalizing these patients. So the authors of this paper note that centers that tend to have high prevalence of outpatient PE management generally have two characteristics in common. They facilitate the identification of ED patients eligible for home discharge, which is where this study comes into play, and they provide a mechanism for timely post-discharge follow-up. Awesome. I like where this is going. All right, so methods time. Tell me about the study design. When and where did this all take place? Give me all the details. So the eSpeed, the Electronic Support for Pulmonary Embolism Emergency Disposition study, is a controlled pragmatic trial of a multidimensional technology and education intervention undertaken over 16 months essentially from the beginning of 2014 through mid-year 2015. There was an eight-month pre-intervention and an eight-month post-intervention period. And it was done across all 21 EDs of the Kaiser Permanente Northern California network. 10 of these EDs served as intervention sites and 11 as control sites. These were not randomized, but we'll get into that, don't worry. More information on the EDs, in 2015, the annual census of each of these 21 EDs ranged from about 28,000 to 121,000 visits, with a median of about 60,000. All right, and the study population? So the eSpeed is part of a larger study called MAPLE, which is the Management of Acute Pulmonary Embolism Study, which is a retrospective observational study of these 21 ODs over 28 months that gives us a lot of information on who these patients are. And essentially, what we're talking about today is the last 16 months of that study. These patients are 18 years of age or older with an acute confirmed PE in the ED or in the 12 hours before arriving at the ED. Excluded patients were, were those known to be pregnant, had a diagnosis of acute VTE in the prior 30 days, were designated in the ED to receive only comfort care, were transferred from the ED to a non-Kaiser Permanente facility, or left the emergency department against medical advice. All right, all right. So now we have a good grasp of who these patients are. So what was the intervention? How did they go about this? Hit me. So the intervention versus control sites were selected totally on convenience, like I said before, not randomized, on the basis of an on-site emergency physician slash researcher who could serve as a study champion. So every site with a champion, essentially someone that was interested in being a champion, was designated as an intervention site, and the, re the remaining 11 served at control sites. At the intervention sites, the CDSS was placed in the patient care workflow after the confirmation of a PE diagnosis and before completion of site-of-care decision-making in terms of discharge. So essentially, the CDSS loaded patient-specific data and re helped review patient eligibility criteria for this, the physician. This using the PE severity index as the risk stratification instrument, along with the Hestia and Ottawa exclusion criteria to help essentially create suggestive messages for the physicians. Okay, well, John, first I have to say that I love the title of study champion. I would love to have that title here in Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so, so this wasn't automatic. 
you know, the physicians had to initiate the CDSS and input their own variables, right? Right. The physicians edited the 10 automatically populated variables as needed and indicated mental status. After calculating the PE severity index score, the tool presented the patient's risk class and class-specific estimate of 30-day all-cause mortality. The CDSS then made open-ended suggestions to the physicians. For example, a low-risk patient, you'd see outpatient management is often possible. For a higher-risk patient, you'd see inpatient care is often indicated. Oh, very cool. I think that's awesome. You know, it's like, here's what the evidence says. We're not telling you what to do. We're not directing the care. We're just offering up some potential evidence-based options for you to consider. You know, I think that would be a very fair way to garner interest from your participants. So, okay, John, so what were the outcomes of the study? The primary outcome was to find a priori as outpatient management, either immediately from the emergency department or after a brief stay in a short term, defined as less than 24 hours, outpatient observation unit based out of the emergency department. So can you elaborate on what exactly that means? Like, why was this still considered outpatient management? What about patients admitted beyond the ED observation units? Were they included as well? So according to the authors, allowing for this brief observation before home discharge is common in prospective outpatient PE research, and they believe that some of the physicians would be much more receptive to outpatient management with such a period to provide essentially reassurance of the clinical stability of the patient. So it's essentially like keeping them in the department for a long time, but a lot of their departments actually have a separate short stay unit, which, you know, realistically is not something that's very common in the Canadian setting. I've seen one in Montreal, but it's literally only created because of bed blocking. Safety outcomes were five-day return visits for PE-related signs, symptoms, or interventions, and 30-day major hemorrhage, recurrent VTE, and all-cause mortality. So from looking at this paper, I mean, there's a ton of data. How did they actually analyze this? So they used a difference-in-differences approach to compare pre-post changes in home discharge between the intervention and control sites. The difference in differences was estimated by the interaction term of site group and pre or post period from a multivariable linear regression model with random effects at the facility level to essentially account for the fact that there's probably going to be some variation between these emergency departments. They then adjusted for a wide range of demographics and clinical variables. You can take a look at the paper to see those. They also did a number of sensitivity analysis that are worth checking out that we won't have time to get into here today. All right, John, bring it together for me. What did they find? Drum roll. So throughout the 16-month study period, so eight-month pre, eight-month post-intervention, 1,703 unique consecutive patients with acute PE across the 21 emergency departments were included. PEs were diagnosed by CT angio in 1,571 of those, which is 92%, by VQ scan in 5.4%, and by compression ultrasound with associated PE symptoms in 40 81 patients with PE at the 10 intervention EDs, 421 during the pre and 460 during the post, and 822 at the 11 control EDs, 410 during the pre and 412 during the post is what they found. In terms of the actual participants, compared with control participants, the ones at the intervention sites were slightly younger, more commonly African-American, had less chronic lung disease or heart failure, and had lower PE severity index scores. At the point of care, the intervention patients versus the control patients had similar vital signs, anatomical locations of the PE, and other biomicro values. Overall, the interesting part, as I said before, after the CDSS implementation with 
structured promotion adjusted for demographic and clinical characteristics saw an increase at intervention sites of discharge of 17.0% pre to 28% post, but at the control site, 15% pre and 14.5% post, which gives us our 11 percentage point greater increase at intervention sites than control sites. Oh, wow. Very cool. It seems like it really made a difference in terms of their decision making at the intervention sites. So did they find any downsides from this? You know, what about those safety outcomes that you mentioned? So the pre-post intervention rates of P-related return visits within the first five days at intervention sites were 12% and 6% respectively, and at control sites, 9.8% and 5.81% respectively. So not much difference. And no other observed adverse events were associated with the trial. All right. Well, John, any interesting aspects of the study that you want to comment on specifically? Lots. I mean, the EMR generally, imagine 21 emergency departments with the same EMR. I'm sitting in Toronto right now. I mean, I could throw a rock at 12 different emergency departments that are all using different EMRs that are not remotely integrated. This is cool for both a patient care standpoint, but also an ability, the ability to do multi-site research like they did here. The integration of these decision tools into an EMR is really awesome. And I mean, in this case, we saw that it helped reduce hospitalizations for PE, but I mean, this might be less related to the specific CDSS criteria that they did, but they're just actually prompting physicians to use an evidence-based approach to disposition planning. I mean, especially in the D with, you know, ton of cognitive burden, the fact that the, the, the EMR is popping something up like that and making you taking the time to think about it is pretty impressive. I did a little bit of digging and in their EMRs, they actually have these for tons of things, not just for research. The pediatric appendicitis risk score pops up, the PR, two chest pain risk scores. They use the CHADS VASC immediately. It, I mean, it is quite amazing. We didn't really get a chance to get into it for lack of time, but it, the behavioral economics behind this is, is also fascinating. I mean, how to influence change in physicians. We know from most of the research that it needs to be easy. I mean, it needs to be something that makes life easier for physicians to change the way they're doing things. And I mean, this is a perfect example of that. They're doing what they're normally doing and something pops up that, that prompts them to think about something. Wow. You know, John, I, I think that's awesome. You know, including this CDSS to really supplement the decision making. I think there's huge potential here. Are there any important limitations of the study that we haven't addressed yet? I mean, the big one we've, we've touched on a little bit is the lack of randomization. The intervention sites were a convenient choice based on having a site champion. I mean, this could be for several reasons, including departments with someone notably interested in PE research or management. But you know, their defense of that, reasonably so, is that the patient characteristics seem grossly similar between the two sites. And because it was a difference of differences, we actually have a pretty good idea in that eight-month pre-period what they were doing in terms of PE discharge. So it's, you know, I mean, I mean, although it is, it is a limitation, I, th I think we have good evidence to say that the sites weren't all that different to begin with. From a generalizability standpoint, an external validity standpoint, this is a very specific subset of patients and of healthcare delivery. Albeit the integration of Kaiser is really impressive. It slightly reduces the applicability of this work to say Toronto and Ottawa with primarily based charting systems and lack of integration across emergency departments. So on balance then, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, outpatient PE management is an important topic with huge possible implications for patients and healthcare utilization. 
And a super interesting topic because much of what is needed is less about actual research to confirm the safety of outpatient management, but instead culture change and how to go about doing this so physicians feel comfortable doing it and feel like what they're doing is the safe choice. And again, super cool methods by this group. I think the EMR integrated clinical decision tools are probably, you know, really the most interesting aspect of this overall. So what are the main take-home points that you want our listeners to have from this article? I think I hesitate to comment on the safety of outpatient management, low-risk PE, because this has been studied elsewhere and really is not the purpose of this study. It's more on, you know, changing behavior. And they clearly, in a very short amount of time, were able to increase the amount of outpatient management of PEs from the departments. So, yeah. Well, I think that's absolutely fantastic. You know, I mean, I, I can only comment on the Ottawa perspective from our eMERGE, and I agree that the cultural component is absolutely huge. I mean, at our centre, in terms of thrombosis follow-up, there's very close support from our consultants. So they, they have clinics seven days a week, referral from the ED is automatic. We fax over and there's no need to call a consultant to try and reach somebody, and the patient will get a call in the morning on a weekday before 8 a.m. or between the hours of 8 and 10 on the weekend. And so from our perspective, I mean, we don't have a CDSS, but we know that the thrombosis referral is in a binder. We know what the criteria are. We can look them up and then we say, hey, this patient's eligible for outpatient management and boom. But we really, we have that trust built there. And so I could see it in an EMR-based system having that immediate pop-up, I mean, that would hugely influence the way you treat these patients. So I think that's fantastic. Totally. And you bring up an interesting point here, which is, you know, in this study, just like you have in Ottawa, having that good outpatient follow-up and trust from the ED provider is, is, is massive. You know, no matter how good the CDSS is, if the provider is not comfortable with when and where this patient's going to be seen, this isn't going to work. So the other side of that is also extremely important. Absolutely. So... Peter, that brings our papers to a close, which means it's time for the good stuff segment. Peter, tell our listeners what you've been reading. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about a piece from the New York Times. It's actually a couple of years old now. It was written by a health economist, Austin Fratt. And the title is A New Way to Think About Conflicts of Interest in Medicine. You know, it came up this week. We were talking at our ICU Journal Club about the new guidelines for sedation that have been published. And in the guidelines with the people that actually make the recommendations, they consider both the financial conflicts of interest, but also intellectual conflicts of interest. And I came across this piece and it was so interesting. It's talking about, you know, the, the big focus these days seems to be on the financial piece. You know, as we read more and more from some of the New York centers that have gotten some press lately. But really, there are many others. And so Austin Fracht, he, he gets into this a little bit more. And I'll read a quote from his article stating that other potential sources of conflicts of interest in medicine have not been as closely examined. Among them are personal relationships, professional ambition, political ideology, religious or moral beliefs, or even personal experiences that can affect how studies are conducted and interpreted. So just sort of food for thought, I guess, for listeners that, you know, we focus on the finance part of things, but there are lots of other things that influence human behavior in terms of conducting studies and interpreting them from the lens of guidelines. So John, what, what about you? Anything come across your laptop or across the dinner table recently? Yeah, I caught uh, this great piece on Healthy Debate, actually. So uh, pretty easy to find by Daphne Eisenberg and colleagues titled, should hospital staff be allowed to use their phones for personal reasons? 
which, you know, any of us that work in hospitals, you're walking around a hospital now, everybody, no matter what department they're working in, no matter what their role is, you know, they're either on their phone or they're grabbing their phone. This article essentially compares the perspective from staff to patients on how cell phone use is perceived. The patient example is really quite powerful. It's from the ICU. It's a family where their father was admitted after a triple bypass. They noticed three nurses next to them scrolling through what seems to be described as Instagram. And once the, notice, the nurses notice that the family sees them, they lean over and show them their dog on Instagram, which, you know, you kind of get the nurse's perspective. You don't want to act like you're not doing that. But at the same time, from the family perspective, they're freaking out what happens if my dad aspirates and everyone's sitting around on Twitter or Instagram and not paying attention. The staff perspective does a good job at noting just how in integral our phones, iPads, and computers have become to the way we practice medicine. And they sort of end and discuss on whether cell phones should be banned with a good take, especially for me on the fact that cell phones are an addiction, but also, you know, a really important part of our professional lives. But finding that sort of weird distinction between professional lives and when we're using it for social reasons in the hospital. Anyways, no easy answer here. I think for me, we can't ban phones, but we need to be cautious and respectful of our patients and their families. But in practice, that's hard. We're, we're all a bit addicted. Anyways, check it out. So, Roundtable listeners, thanks again for tuning in. And Peter, thanks for being aboard today. Great. Thanks again for having me, John. It's a pleasure. The Roundtable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundstable, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.